You are listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast, the weekly show where we take a look at some epic marketing failures, along with some pretty amazing brand rescues and comebacks. And now your hosts, Nico and Chad. Hey, Chad. Yeah. Did you know if you've got a plan B, then plan A is less likely to work? That's interesting. Yeah. Every now and then it actually hurts to be prepared. So we can procrastinate now. No, 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 no. That's not, that's not that. Well, it's not at all what I'm saying. <laughs> no, in a, in a series of experiments at the University of Pennsylvania, researchers found that when a group thought about a backup plan before starting a task, they actually did worse than the group that didn't have a plan B. Mm, yeah, that kind of reminds me of like in the 15th century when captains would burn the boats yeah. behind their soldiers when they'd be like taking over an island or something like that. Yeah, they had no plan B to get home. They had to win. Yeah, exactly. You have no other choice. Yeah, so when they realized that they had options, their motivation for succeeding actually dropped, which is really interesting. It's a bit like, what is your plan B for the virus right now, the coronavirus? <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I have a plan yeah. B. It's, it's really all just Netflix and good wine. <laughs> I know it's crazy times, right? I think we're in week five now of our California lockdown. So again, apologies about the audio quality. We're in two different locations and we've got little people running in the background and pets and cats and dogs and birds and it's, it's, it's a little bit different than we usually record. But yeah, I mean, today's episode felt very similar to what we did for Theranos and Edison. It's one of those things that we started a specific location and then ended up in a very, very different place because we just found very interesting yeah. rabbit holes. So we, we initially started with researching Domino's because Domino's is most probably one of the most famous comebacks that currently exists. There's a really cool quote from Patrick Doyle, which is the former CEO of Domino's Pizza. And he said, the pain of loss is double the pleasure of winning. Isn't that great? Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. The pain of loss is double the pleasure of winning. And I think that's exactly why we went down this this psychology rabbit hole with this episode, because we yeah. were actually researching Domino's Pizza, which is one of the, the greatest comebacks of all time. But just some of the quotes that we found for Patrick, you know, sent us down this whole psychological rabbit hole that we find ourselves in right now, <laughs> which is which is actually a really comfortable place to be and something we both really like. Yeah. So that's, that's how we got here today. Yeah. And so to build on what Patrick said, he also said, leaders who want to shake things up have to be comfortable with the idea that failure is an option. In a world of hyper competition and nonstop disruption, playing it safe is the riskiest course of all. There's a recipe for reinvention that makes for good pizza and big change. Yeah, that's good stuff. <laughs> yeah, he goes on to talk about how there's these two great ills of executive life. Mm -hmm. And those two ills are omission bias and loss aversion. So he says that omission bias is the tendency to worry more about doing something than not doing something. And that's because everybody sees the results of a move gone bad. It's very visible. But few people see the costs of moves not made. So when you don't do something, nobody sees the consequences of that until much later down the road. And it's just much less poignant, kind of like what the reaction is. Yeah, we're people, we're just scared to make mistakes. We're scared of losing. We're scared of being in this position of putting ourselves out there and actually being wrong. 
it stings when you make a mistake and and how people react to mistakes in general is much more severe or at a much higher level than how people react to doing something right. Right. So the second thing that he talked about was loss aversion. And that basically describes the tendency to play not to lose Mm -hmm. rather than playing to win. So it's being kind of tentative and playing on your heels versus really being aggressive and going after things. And he says, the pain of loss is double the pleasure of winning, as you said. So the natural inclination is just to be super cautious, even in situations that demand creativity. Yeah. And very often we see brands and companies and executives running a company in that frame of mind. They're trying to play it safe. They want to be wrong. They've got shareholders. They've got competition. And that actually becomes their Achilles heel. They think they're doing the right thing. And that's actually what brings the company down. Yep. Yeah. So let's dive into that a little bit more and talk about some of these cognitive biases. Yeah, sure. So if we think of omission bias or loss aversion, and we can also refer to it as a status quo and loss aversion or reference dependence and loss aversion, there's actually a really cool seminar that Dr. Lori Santos did. She's an associate professor of psychology at Yale University, and she presents a study that was done by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, is that how you pronounce it? You, you lived in Russia for a while. How do you pronounce his yeah, last name? Yeah, Tversky, Tversky, I think. Yeah, so in a nutshell, they give participants an option to choose a combination of two drugs. And it's oversimplified, but the purpose of choosing the right amount of drugs is to save the world from a deadly flu virus. Very, very relevant to, <laughs> to where we are today. And the way that they serve it to the participants And the one scenario is how many lives they can save. And the second scenario is how many fewer lives they can save. But the actual net result is exactly the same. But the outcome, the majority of the people choose the former to avoid the risk. So they all reference dependence. And we think in this in terms of absolutes, but relevant to some status quo or a baseline. Got it. So we're all just trying to avoid that feeling of something going wrong or the responsibility for something going wrong. So another example of that is when you find a $100 bill lying on the road. You don't think of how that $100 bill is going to impact your entire net worth or how that plays into your long-term investment strategy. You just think about how it changed your status quo in that moment. And most people think about, ooh, what am I going to blow this on? Because I didn't have this a few seconds ago. So you kind of frame each choice relative to that status quo. And then the second bias affecting your choice of losing lives in that example you just gave is like we talked about that loss aversion, just the reluctance to make choices that lead to losses. So even though the overall outcome is exactly the same, you're just your natural tendency is just not to do anything that could harm somebody or lead to any kind of loss. Or yourself, for that matter, your career, your family, your staff, your company. It affects everything. Right, yeah. And so we try to avoid it at all costs because it just doesn't feel good. And that also causes us to do a lot of irrational stuff. So, for example, people very frequently, they'll sell low and buy high when it comes to stocks or property oftentimes out of fear. As soon as they see something going wrong, you sell even though it might not be the right time. A really good example of this actually for our sports fans is fourth down in professional football. 
So in football, what happens is you have four downs to get a first down. And when you get to fourth down, usually what happens is you punt the ball away to the other team or you kick a field goal. And there's been all these studies done that show that on fourth down with one yard to go and fourth down with two yards to go, you should go for it 100% of the time if you are not in the last eight minutes of the game and the overall outcome will be better. Right. However, but, but they don't. They do, they don't. Uh, they, <laughs> I know they, nothing they about go, helmet football, but I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even close. Even in the NFL, where millions of dollars are riding on it, the coaches completely buck the statistics and go for it on fourth and one less than twenty percent of the time, and on fourth and two less than five percent of the time. Yeah. So it's this irrational kind of fear of oh man, if we go for it and we fail. The fans are going to boo. Everyone's going to hate it. They'll say it was a stupid choice and we should So they're just... trying to play it safe, right? They're trying to play it safe. Yeah. yeah. And that's exactly the the next chapter in our story today, which is a brand that played it very, very safe. Right. And this brand is called Blockbuster. And we, <laughs> yes. we all know how they, we all know what happened to Blockbuster, <laughs> but, it's, but it's actually a pretty interesting story besides the fact that it was just a horrible failure. But in the context yep. of what we're explaining today, because the decisions they made were based on status quo and playing it safe. And they were the market leader. And very often, I think the market leader within the category feels that that's the right thing to do. Yep. Because they're trying to please Wall Street, their shareholders, their investors, and so on. So at a thousand foot view, just the history of blockbusters, they were started in 1985 by David Cook. And they went public the year after. And an investment group of waste management executives. And when I read that the first time, it really made me think of Tony Soprano, which has obviously got nothing to do with this. They took over before the sale to Viacom in 1994. And right about this time in 97, Netflix goes public. And we can now say, at this point, we can just stop the, the story and we can say the rest is history. <laughs> but let's go on. So a fun fact is that in Netflix's IPO, it was for $95 million. And today the company is valued at $181 billion, which is just phenomenal, right? Wow. Yeah, it is interesting because they actually offered their own sale. Netflix offered to sell themselves to Blockbuster at some point. And there's a really interesting book called That Will Never Work, which is by the co-founder of Netflix, Rolf Randolph, where he explains a great detail about the actual meeting that they had at Blockbuster HQ and the existing CEO, John Antiogo, actually were basically like laughing at them. He was saying stuff like, we don't need to buy you. We've got everything that we need. And he felt that would be a very risky endeavor, right? In 1999, Viacom sells 18% of their stock in an IPO for over $450 million. And this is where Carl Icahn steps in and buys around 6% of Blockbuster. And that's around $85 million. In 2003 to 2005, Blockbuster loses 75% of its market value due to Netflix and Redbox. Eesh. And this is what's really amazing to me. During this time, they took in almost $800 million in late fees. And that Ouch. Was, <laughs> uh, uh, and that was, that was 16% of their revenue. So that just that in itself shows you how they were running the organization, right? They were doubling down on things that were annoying their customer for using their service. 
Yeah, maybe not the best strategy long term. And, and people were revolting. Yeah, 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 of, of course. Everybody was complaining, complaining. Of course. But they, they thought that, hey, you know, I mean, we're the only game in town. We're massive and we're the thousand pound gorilla. So right. people will just deal with it. And here's a really cool clip of Jim Keyes, the CEO. And you can hear from the audio that he's super defensive and he's making all these decisions from a status quo perspective. Blockbuster, trying to stay competitive in the rapidly changing game and movie rental industry. I have with me now Chairman and CEO Jim Keyes. Uh, thanks so much for joining us because it certainly is a, 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 a big, big and momentous day for us. Uh, and as a CEO, I mean, first off, before we get into your business, uh, taking a look at this report, does it make you more, I mean, you know, do you think we're at a turning point here in the economy? Does it make you more encouraged? Well, you know, the government is very much, uh, or our country and our financial situation is very much like Blockbuster at this point. We're in the middle of a transformation. And during that transformation process, there are a lot of confusing signals. It's very difficult to see where you are at any given time. We are optimistic. We're just as optimistic about our overall economic situation as we are with Blockbuster because we do see that as we change, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Jim, I do want to get to your to your strategy itself because online DVD sales have really eaten, eaten into your uh, into your market share, and I know you're getting online as well. Uh, but Netflix, the biggest competitor, how do you stay nimble in this environment? Because you're considered sort of the granddaddy of, uh, of DVD rentals. Well, the key is actually transformation, and I guess we are the granddaddy, but we're also the new kid on the block in many ways because we're we're going multi-channel, getting out of the box, if you will. So it's not just about being your favorite corner video store. Today, it's about making our content available any anywhere, anytime. So we have new, brand new Blockbuster Express kiosks coming here to New York City, for right, example. I think the Dwayne Reeds or something like that. Exactly, yeah. exactly. A new level of convenience. We have uh, uh, DVDs by mail, uh, similar to the way Netflix provides their service. And then uh, also, more recently, Blockbuster On Demand, with Blockbuster movies as convenient but, as a button on your remote control. But, but I need to ask, and uh, just give me a, a short answer on this. Uh, Stores. You're still going to have stores, do you think, eventually? You know, the store can actually be um, a service to our customers. The store has to change. It can't just rent videos. But if we change and add games and add connected devices, the store can remain relevant indefinitely into the future. Okay. Jim, well put. Thank you very much for joining us and for stopping by in this day. That is Chairman and CEO uh, Jim Keyes of Blockbuster. Yeah, it's just amazing to me in that interview how everything that Blockbuster is doing and the lens through which Jim is approaching everything is completely reactive and, and defensive. Everything that he talks about in terms of solutions are things that Netflix and Redbox were already doing and already successful with. And his kind of solutions were playing catch up and still really not understanding the fact that digital is going to be this revolutionary thing that's going to change everything. And he's still talking about how important the brick and mortar stores were to movie rentals. It just shows you, I mean, this guy comes from a brick and mortar background, right? From 7-Eleven. Exactly. At this time when digital was exploding, Blockbuster hired Jim Keyes from 7-Eleven, which just demonstrates the way that the organization approached things from a defensive position. In fact, when Keyes was hired, Carl Icahn said he was exactly the right person for the job. We all know how all of that goes. In, in 2010, Blockbuster files Chapter 11 bankruptcy proceedings. 
And in March of that year, the New York Stock Exchange issued warnings about market capitalization for Blockbuster that they needed at least $75 million to survive just the next 30 trading days. Ooh. Not good. Yeah. So, I mean, basically, Blockbuster is really just remembered as, as this amazing object lesson in what happens when you not only are you not adapting to a changing world, but you're at the back end of that adaptation curve. You're not in front of things and constantly on your heels playing defense instead of playing offense. But there is still one store that we can visit today. There is. <laughs> yeah. Yes, there is one last relic from the past. It's in Bend, Oregon, and it's the last store. You actually have to send out a tweet, and the store owner will then come and unlock the shop for you so you can <laughs> walk down memory lane and remember it's that amazing. date with that really pretty girl, you know, when you went and grabbed a Blockbuster video and had a good night, so. I still have a Blockbuster card. I still have. Really? Yeah, I still got one. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, see, it, it walk down memory lane. Yeah, so this is a really great example of running a company and making decisions with that whole status quo or reference dependence methodology that we just talked about. Yeah. So the next one is where we started today. This is like where we initially, the story we <laughs> wanted to tell was about Domino's. And again, Domino's is one of the greatest brand comebacks. And it was because you had somebody that just made very smart decisions and took risks and also owned up when they made bad choices. Yep. And as we know, for every great comeback, there has to be a failure. Yes. And up until the point before they started climbing themselves out of the hole, their failure hole, they started playing really, really good offensive games. So the history with them is they got off to a really fast start. In the beginning of 1960, Tom and his brother James Mannequin took over the operation of a company or a pizzeria called Dominic's, and it was located in, you can pronounce that word, Yips. <laughs> well, I'm probably going to get it wrong as well, but Yipsil I think it's Ypsilanti. Ypsilanti, <laughs> Michigan. Yeah, Michigan is known for its amazing uh, lake names and town names. We, we spend a lot of time out there, and I, I always like their long names that they have. And I'm sure for someone from South Africa, it's always a pleasure trying to pronounce those names. Yeah, <laughs> Ypsilanti. Yeah. So anyway, so they bought this company, Dominic's and Ypsilanti. So they put down $500 of their own money, and they borrowed $900 to pay for the store. Wow. Yeah, in 1965 or 1960. And in 1965, they opened their first franchise. In 1998, Domino's was the fastest growing pizzeria chain in the US. They've grown to 6,000 stores globally. And they had this whole 30 minutes delivery guarantee policy that actually later got reverse due to yeah. court order because some of their drivers were wrecking their cars. Got in some really bad accidents, right? Yeah, that's right. Just trying to rush for the delivery. So after 38 years of ownership, the founder, Tom Monaghan, announced his retirement and he sold 93% of the company to Bain Capital. And the fun fact here is Bain Capital's main executive is... Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney, yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. And they sold this for a billion dollars, you know, which is not a bad return if you think they spent $1,400 initially to buy it all the way to a billion dollars when he retired. Yeah, I think we'd all be happy with that ROI. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> so by 2010, the effects of the mortgage crisis and recession of 2008 had really compounded by that time, along with the slow and sweeping effects of just years of cost-cutting measures, 
leading to cheap and and really like watered down ingredients. They literally like would water down the pizza sauce. Yeah, there's a really interesting article you made me think of that now that I read with their chief communications officer where he explains what happened here. So they were cutting costs in all different departments, but independently. So they would tell the guys that were working at the dough, they need to save 3%, so they would water it down. They did the same thing with the sauce, they did the same thing with the cheese. And over a period of time of many years, they ended up with this product, which was just half of where they started. (laughs) So yeah, the product isn't good anymore. And they're really starting to struggle. So in 2010, shortly after learning just how bad customers thought the pizza really was, and they thought it was was pretty bad, they tapped Patrick Doyle as the next CEO. And he had already been at Domino's for a number of years. So he was familiar with the landscape and knew it was going on. But we all kind of know what happens next. They start innovating like crazy. They have this massive digital transformation. There's a key inflection point here of employees spitting in the pizza what happened there was on social media or something yes there were a couple of employees at a local chain that actually filmed themselves and this was at the very beginning of when social media first started taking off and nobody really knew what it was or you know what the consequences would be for the the good old days yeah the good old (laughs) the wild wild west (laughs) so these these two employees filmed this four and a half minute video and post it to youtube of them literally spitting and blowing their nose into a pizza and joking about how they were doing that and could get away with it and all this kind of stuff so that was like one of the first things that he had to deal with as ceo is that issue. And so, you know, had had to come out and apologize and try to regain confidence. And that was one of the things that really kind of, I think, influenced their leadership team to say, hey, we really need to think about how we're listening to our customers and make sure we understand what's super important to them. And so, you know, they start doing all of these focus groups and figuring out how people actually think about the pizza. So here's a clip of an actual commercial they ran that showed behind the scenes kind of video of, or hidden camera video of customers in a focus group bashing their pizza. And they ran this as an ad. Amazing. Pizza, where's the love? (laughs) How hard, bread, sauce, cheese, fresh ingredients. Doesn't feel like there's much love in Domino's pizza. Domino's pizza crust to me is like cardboard. Is it smart to watch this stuff? Yeah, that's hard to watch. I hear what some folks are saying about our stuff. Oh, this one's bad. Worst excuse for pizza I've ever had. The sauce tastes like ketchup. Totally void of flavor. You know what, when you first hear it, it's, it's, it's shocking. The cardboard complaint is the most common one. This we hear over and over and over. I mean, that hits you right in the heart. This is what we've done, this is what I've done, you know, for 25 years now. You can either use negative comments to get you down or you can use them to excite you and energize your process of making a better pizza. We did the latter. That's just incredible. I mean, that <laughs> that is not status quo, right? That's exact. <laughs> that's the exact opposite of what you would expect them to do, and I think that's where Patrick Doyle was such an innovative leader, and forward thinking, and extremely humble, right? Yeah, I mean, because it's it's not only the image of the company, but it's his own personal public image, because he came out as the face of the company to say, hey. The buck stops with me. I'm owning this. I'm accountable for this. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to make sure that we fix this for you guys. 
And so they launched these campaigns bashing their own pizza and promising change. And it absolutely worked. People really felt the authenticity because they coupled it with significant improvement to their product. Yeah, I was about to say that the campaign was one thing, but they actually fixed the product as well. Right. Right, which is something we talk about a lot on the show, that you can have the best campaign all you want, but if the product lacks, it's not going to go very far. Yep. <laughs> AKA Bloomberg. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Episode two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you mentioned that he was very humble, and I think that is true. As a new CEO, Patrick himself joked about if this worked, it would be amazing. But if it didn't work, I would be the shortest tenured CEO of a publicly traded company in history. Mm -hmm. And it did work, but that was because he was humble enough to listen to his team and kind of accept the openness and transparency that they recommended. So his chief marketing officer, Russell Wiener, his VP of advertising, Karen Kaiser, their outside ad agency, all of those people, once they kind of got a sense for how bad the situation really was with their customer perception, they all advocated this transparency approach. So Patrick Doyle said, the way you deal with this problem is to walk out and talk about it. If you spend mm -hmm. tens of millions of dollars on advertisements talking about how lousy your product is and that you need to change it, it's really easy and credible inside the organization to say, this is the example of how we want to go after everything. And I can't take credit for the idea. I wholly acquiesced to doing it. It made a lot of sense. It's just all too easy to sit on the sidelines and criticize. You need to be the person who's diving in. Well, he's a smart guy. <laughs> yeah, and, and smart enough to realize that this situation really required something radical and aggressive. Yeah, so getting back to the whole cognitive bias thing that we were talking about is that as humans, if we just saw through Blockbuster and, and through Domino's, as humans, it's easy for us to hunker down and to make decisions based on status quo. We're scared of losing. We're scared of being called out. We're scared of making decisions that's going to have severe impact on us. And another analogy that I thought of when researching this is for, for like traders. If you think of like stock traders or, or any type of security trader, yeah, holding onto a losing trade is the biggest cancer that any trader can have. And that's just the thing that amateurs do. So becoming a successful trader has got nothing to do with being right all the time, it's got to do with when to let go of a losing trade. And that's really hard because the psychology in that is that our mind, the emotional side and the logical financial side kind of like collides. And that's exactly what we're talking about here today as well. And it's the same within business as well, right? We think of omission bias or loss aversion as something that influences of how we make business decisions. And that's why it's such a very powerful metaphor, not just for business owners, but also for marketers. So Doyle's most important lesson is about the mindset that is required for an organization to do things in tough fields. And this is not easy. You would expect a big organization with billions of dollars like Blockbuster to get this right. But because we're all human and human minds are involved, or making these decisions, we often find that executives can steer an organization far from where it should be because they are managing it through this status quo mindset. Yeah, and the more you invest into something, the harder it is to let go of it. 
And so if you're making a wrong choice because you're being defensive or, you know, you're afraid of, of letting go of something or afraid of doing something wrong, it's very easy to continue to double and triple down because you've already invested so much time, resources, organizational equity into this decision. And it's really interesting that Blockbuster and Domino's were facing the same types of pressures. Yeah. Same issue. The two different sides of the same coin. Both of them were facing a lot of external pressure from innovation. At this time, Domino's was struggling with fast casual coming up and all of these mm-hmm. kind of artisan pizza companies and Uber Eats delivering foods. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, it wasn't like Domino's was sitting in this easy spot where all they had to change was just better tasting cheese and pepperoni and they're good to go, right? Like, it really took a lot for them to innovate both their product and their delivery mechanisms and their technology and everything else. And so they had to apply this approach to the entirety of their business. Mm-hmm. And so I think to be successful, you really just have to be a good listener. Absolutely. And I think this is also really applicable to what we're experiencing right now with the coronavirus and how do we as marketers adapt to this changing landscape and how do we deal with crisis? Domino's actually is a really good example of how to market in a time of crisis where you're very authentic, you're very transparent, you're very empathetic, and you focus on solutions. And when times are tough, really taking the risks to be authentic and to help and to get out there and still play offense when it feels like the only thing that you can do is play defense is, a, I think, a really timely lesson for right now. Absolutely. Well, with that, let's wrap it up. There's a great spot for us to, to finish today's episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. And with the COVID-19 pandemic, stay safe, stay at home, and, and more importantly, stay sane, for, especially for those people with kids in the home. We'll talk to you guys next week. You've been listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast. This show is hosted by Nico Katsia and Chad Childress, the co-founders of KPI Agency, a marketing rescue agency. Be sure to visit marketingrescuepodcast.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, contact the hosts, and discover fantastic bonus content.